Welcome to the Don't HR Alone podcast, your daily source for news and updates relevant to the HR profession. We bring you weekly interviews with HR leaders, CEOs, and small business owners, along with our daily updates. Each day, you can tune in for updates by following us on the social media of your choice. We post to LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also subscribe by going to don'thralone.com. And our show is on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher Radio, where you can subscribe as well. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Rami Alijil, and welcome to episode number 43. Today we're going to do a question roundup. We have three user-submitted questions, and I'm so excited. Thank you guys for sending these in. Anytime you have an HR question, this gives us great content. And if you're wondering, I know lots of our other listeners are too. One is around suspected drug use by employees. Another about what to do with older employees who are eligible for Medicare. And finally, one about what to say when called for job verification. Okay, so first question, suspected drug and alcohol abuse. Here's the question as submitted. What is the best way to confront an employee who seems to be under the influence of drugs and alcohol? This employee has bloodshot eyes, smelled of alcohol, and was, quote, not herself. Hmm. If you suspect an employee has a drug or alcohol problem that may be affecting job performance, it's a best practice for the employee's direct supervisor, management representative, or human resources department to investigate and document the specific, objective, observable behaviors. When doing so, continue the following. Could the employee have a disability or some other medical issues that are causing her to have a perceived smell of alcohol? And also, do observations or reports about this employee come from a credible source, such as a trusted member of the management team, not necessarily a co-worker? Are the symptoms and observations reasonable cause to suspect alcohol and drug abuse? So first, what is the complaint? What did you hear? Who did it come from? Was it credible? To your knowledge, do they have any other medical issue? Just write all this down in a Word doc. And then are the symptoms and observations reasonable cause to suspect alcohol and drug abuse? If yes, here's what we do next. If no, save that, put it in their file, you're good. You had a complaint, you took care of it. If it's yes, then you have now a reason to investigate, okay? Reasonable is not merely rumored or speculation, but a suspicion based on specific objective facts and rational inferences from observing an employee's behavior. Specific objective facts and rational inferences drawn from those facts must justify reasonable suspicion. This may include alcohol on the breath, lapses in performance, inability to appropriately respond to questions, and physical symptoms of alcohol or drug influence. Examples of drug and or alcohol abuse included but are not limited to the following sign. Order of alcohol, order of marijuana, slurred speech, flushed or swollen face, red or runny eyes or nose, pupils dilated or constricted or unusual eye movement in general, lack of coordinations, tremors or sweats, weariness, exhaustion, and sleepiness. Take that list. You can, it's on our blog. You can, you can check it there or you can just you know, write it down from what I just said. Check some boxes. Did, did, if they had four or five or six of these things, darn, you're ready to go. If they were weary and sleepy, probably not the time to do this investigation. However, if there is a safety concern, you, that lowers the bar, right? You should take immediate action and confront the employee. Just make sure. It's a good idea to review your existing policy regarding drug, drug and alcohol abuse in the workplace. If your business has a policy that prohibits use of alcohol and drugs while at work and you have a drug and alcohol testing policy, then you can send the employee for testing in accordance with the policy. If there's no testing provision as part of your current policy, you should not send the employee for testing without consulting legal counsel first. You have to have a policy on this, guys. If you're a small company and you don't have a policy like this, or heck, you don't have an employee handbook at all, 
you're in rough shape. This is why we have those. If you need help, let us know. We're happy to help you put all that together, okay? All right, first, so assuming you have a drug testing policy, first address the specific observed behaviors with the employee in person if you're going to confront them. Say something like, over the last few weeks, I've noticed X, and today in particular, I observed Y. What is going on? Are you okay? You may want to have two people meet with the employee to verify what is observed. So don't do it alone. If you have an HR person or a direct manager, however you want to do it, try to have two people. The employee may give a partial answer that will give you room to ask follow-up questions, including, have you been drinking on the job? Often the employee will give a partial admission that will help you determine whether she has in fact violated company policy and or has a problem. Disciplinary action or termination of employment may be warranted depending on the situation. Granting a leave of absence for an employee to seek treatment might be an appropriate step too. It all depends on the facts and circumstances. Key thing, under the ADA, the American with Disabilities Act, you can't fire an employee because of alcoholism or because you perceive the employee to be an alcoholic. You can, however, discipline or discharge employees who alcoholism prevents them from properly performing their job duties. While the ADA specifically recognizes alcoholism as a disability, it also allows employers to prohibit employees from being under the influence of alcohol at work and hold employees with alcohol problems to the same job performance standards and workplace behavior as other employees. Okay, The EEOC has a whole document on uh, alcoholism in the ADA if you want to check it out. You can Google it, EEOC, ADA, alcoholism. Pop right up. I hope that's helpful. Um, the key here is that you need to have a policy for testing uh, and, and, and drug-free workplace. If you don't have that policy, you really don't have anything to do except treat it as a poor performance issue, right? If you do have that policy, then it's, it's quite straightforward, send them for testing. Uh, if they don't, then you got to figure out, is this affecting the job and what does that look like? If it's just you care about this employee, this isn't really in my notes, but I'm just going to kind of freehand this. If it's a small business and this is someone, you're a small company and you, you're just worried about them, Keep it outside of work, okay? If it's one of those where you're just worried, they're looking rough, they're, you know, their job doing is fine, but you're just worried about how they're doing, just try to try to address it outside of the workplace so that it isn't confused with an HR action, okay? All right. Next question. Removing Medicare-eligible employees from group health plans. Okay, so this is the exact question. We're a small company with only 15 employees. Thank you for telling me that. I have to guess a lot of times. One of our employees will keep working after his 65th birthday. Congratulations to him. Can we remove him from our group health plan since he's eligible for Medicare? Probably not. Long and short, there's a federal law known as the Medicare Secondary Payer Act, and it rules, uh, sec I'm sorry, Medicare Secondary Payer Rules. It imposes requirements on employer-sponsored health plans if the employee has 20 or more workers. You only have 15. But the MSP rule determines which coverage, the employer's plan or Medicare, is the primary payer. The rules vary depending on several factors, the employer's size, whether claims are active, whether claims uh, are for active employees versus retired or former employees, whether the person's Medicare eligibility is based on age versus disability. If the employer's plan is deemed the primary payer, so that says that you are, the employer is prohibited from dropping the employee or spouse from coverage or offering any incentive to discourage enrollment. Those MSP's prohib prohibitions do not apply, however, if the employer has fewer than 20 employees like your company. So you're getting close to where you just absolutely can't. But the next issue is whether a small employer like yourself can exclude age 65 and older employees from its group health plan. So can you just exclude them? So you're not under this MSP. You're, you just want to say, eh, you're 65, go get your own health care. Regardless of the employer size, the Federal Age Discrimination in Employment Act, ADEA, 
prohibits group health plans from excluding active employees or spouses from coverage coverage solely because they are Medicare beneficiaries. The ADEA makes an exemption for employees that can meet an equal benefit or equal cost standard, but those cases are really infrequent. You'd have to show that Medicaid or Medicare by itself is better, and that's going to be very difficult to do. It doesn't cover drugs most of the time, right? So that's going to be a bit of a problem. So check with your benefits broker as well. If, if we're your benefits broker, I, I couldn't tell that from your question. Let us know. Uh, and also check with your employment counsel before excluding this employee from your group plan. My general rule is going to be you can't because of the ADEA, because of the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. Now, if he wants to, he can, of course, drop and go get Medicare and get his own um, uh, Medicare supplements and, and a Part D plan. But you don't you don't you don't have the right to ask him to you don't have the right to incentivize him to and you obviously cannot exclude him from it okay i uh, hope that was helpful last question is about employment verification how much information should we, this is the question i'm sorry i'm going back i had a bit of a crazy morning how much information should we provide when we receive calls to verify employment for a former employee should we just verify the dates of employment the title eligibility for rehire what should we do Okay, you are not required to provide information regarding an employee whose references are requested. Because of the risk of defamation claims, many employers have chosen to provide have policies in which only dates of employment and position are confirmed. Employees, employers can encounter problems if the employee can prove that a statement was made with a reckless disregard for whether it was true or not. In an employment setting, defamation claims primarily arise from the following two situations. Discussing an employee's alleged poor performance, misconducts, or reasons for termination beyond those who need to know, and responses to reference checks. That's what's going to get you in trouble. If they're just calling to verify employment, yeah, give them, give them the name, uh, you know, have them provide the name, give them the uh, title, and when they, when they worked for you. I wouldn't go into eligibility for rehire. If they're asking for a reference... It's a bit different. You may avoid defamation claims if you acquire and apply a basic understanding of the law in the sensitive area and follow a few simple precautions. Uh, in in reference to uh, in regard to reference inquiries, um, that means limiting your reference check responses to confirmation of dates of employment and positions held, and obtaining a signed release from an employee before releasing any salary history or other employment data. The flip side of this is you also need to consider whether withholding information may put your organization at risk for a negligent referral, which is kind of the opposite case. Negligent referrals in this context can be defined as a failure to disclose accurate information about a former employee that may have helped the new employer prevent an incident in the workplace. If you're concerned with the potential of a negligent referral, you should consult with legal counsel on whether the information on a former employee should be disclosed. I don't want to go into too much depth here because I don't want to give you bad advice. If an employee was terminated for cause and you have justifiably built a case, you may be able to disclose that. If it's criminal and a charge was filed, you can probably disclose that. But if it's just they did a bad job, they weren't good at their job, and so we let them go, probably don't want to. But you're going to need to check with counsel on this one. We try to answer every question we get with a lot of detail, but this is one where, given what you've said, my response is verify the date of employment and the title. That's it. That's all you have to do. If you're wanting to do more, check with your legal counsel if it's anything negative that you're going to possibly say. Okay? Ladies and gentlemen, that is it for Don't HR Alone number 43. Thank you so much for listening. Like, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, uh, uh, and that other one. 
LinkedIn. Yeah, we're all on there too. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play. The link to the iTunes is right on our blog. Uh, we'd love to have you guys subscribe. The number one way you can support our podcast is, of course, to share us and like us, but to review us on those subscription services, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play. You can actually give us five stars or even leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. Anything like that that will help our podcast grow and help more people hear us does a big deal for us. Thank you again. You guys go out there. Have a wonderful day and get your work done.